Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Let's look at uh, the rest of the types here. Just before we go on, though, I, I, as I was thinking over the break here a few minutes, um, in verse 7 he says, I want you to show yourself a pattern of good works, and then in your doctrine, in your teaching, in your beliefs, in your teaching, what you teach, you need to show integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, and sound speech. I think all those refer best, it's best to understand them all referring back to the doctrine that he's teaching. Because that, that makes sense when it says that one who's an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say against you. Being able to handle the word of God with such reverence and such clarity and such conviction that people can't argue against it. All right, And I think that's, that's something that we all need to strive for because you know, if you don't handle the word of God well, people can find chinks in it. And here's the thing, if it's authored by God, it's unarguable, isn't it? We just need to make sure we can relate it correctly. Then in chapter 3, and again, in the, in, you know, the original text, you don't have any chapter breaks. He says, remind them, who's them? All of them. Anybody. Remind them. Anybody you're speaking to, right? Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Okay, now what, what do we have? You've got the slave master, you've got the younger men, younger women, older men, older women, and all of them are to subject themselves to what? Rulers and authorities. Who's this referring to? The government, the leaders, the whatever they are, you know. Um, one of the things that we need to be as believers is good citizens. Whether the Republican is in office or the Democrat, whether somebody you likes in there or somebody you don't like in there. Look, we are to be good model citizens. That's one of our responsibilities. Who is the king at this time? In Rome. Nero, I think it was. Now, what, what kind of guy was Nero? He was ruthless. He makes Saddam look like a Boy Scout. Um, he, was, he was pretty bad. Ruthless. Evil man. And Paul is telling them, I want you to be subject to rulers and authorities. And of course, this goes back to the Romans 13. God has put these rulers and authorities in place to produce order in society. If you don't have rulers and authorities, you have chaos. And he says, I don't want to have a chaotic society. I want a ordered society. So you're to subject yourself to the rulers. To obey. What does it mean to obey? To be obedient. To follow the law. As believers, we are to be obedient to the law. Does that include the speed limit? Okay. Just want to make sure. Yeah, often, often I'm going down 480 and somebody was ichthus, flies by me like I'm sitting at a red light. You ever been flipped off by somebody who has an ichthus sticker on the back of their car, you know? And they flip you off and yell some obscenity out the window. And Look, it, it, the idea there is, is obey the laws. As much as possible, obey the law of the land. Be subject to the ruling authorities. 
and to be ready for every good work. What's it mean to be ready for every good work? To be eager to do good things. To be eager for it. To not, to not be passive about it. Be eager to do that which is good. That which is upright. To be eager for every good work. Um, I think, now, what argument can you make here? What good work, what good work do you think he's talking about? But in this context, it would probably be for who? Well, what's the context? Remind them to be subject to authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Well, to be a good citizen in your community, do things for the community. You know, as Christians, we're to be a positive, have a positive impact on our community. Doesn't mean all of us are civil servants or anything like that. It means you care about your community. No, you don't. Be good for your town. Uh, be a good citizen. Be a good neighbor. Treat people, especially those outside the household of God. How are you going to reach them for Christ if you don't know who they are? And if you're if you're known throughout the town as a bad citizen and somebody's always causing trouble down at City Hall, what's that do with the name of Christ? Yeah. And then it says to speak evil of no one. What's it mean to speak evil of no one? Don't talk about people. Oh, that's a common pastime. And you know what? We all have a temptation to do that. It's really fun to talk about people because it makes us feel good, doesn't it? Now, now in, in, in a context, it could be referring to just the rulers, but I think it's more broader than that. I think he's broadening it out. I mean, not to speak evil of no one, that would certainly include the rulers. I, I have problems with Christians who badmouth those in authority. You know, I had trouble when President Clinton was president. I didn't vote for him, I didn't care for him as president, but he's a president, you respect him. And as a Christian, our responsibility is to show respect to those in authority and to not badmouth them. And not write dissertations on the evil people. We're not to do that. That's not our job. To be peaceable and gentle and showing humility on men. What do those character traits do? Being peaceable and gentle. And showing humility. Being the model neighbor, the model citizen, the model, the model person in the town. Being peaceable, you're not always causing fights. You're trying to settle things down. You're not trying to cause trouble. Gentle, what's that? Well, gentle is a gracious spirit showing deference to other people. And humility, what's humility? More highly or over or you know, I, I don't know if this is the word used here, but many times in the New Testament the word is tufao, which means to puff up with smoke. 
It's like to blow up a balloon with hot air. And he's saying, don't be puffed up. Think of someone else. It's interesting. It's one of the things I try to do. And um, I've been making a conscious effort to try and do lately. You know, when, when I go to a I eat out a lot. So I, when I go to a restaurant, treat the waiters or the waitresses. Treat them with respect. You know, thank them for getting your meal and tip them well. I used to be a cheapskate on tipping. I'm up to the 20% mark now most times. Tip them well. Be kind to them. My wife, she's wonderful. She always makes a habit of, you know, when we go to the grocery store, she finds out who the name of the person is, and she thanks them for checking out our groceries. Well, it's their job, right? I mean, we get, be thankful. Be, be, every, and, and I'll tell you what, you go to bed, everybody knows Donna. Everybody knows Donna. Everybody wants, she says, I walked in the Revco store there to say, How's your wife doing? She's so nice. You know, I'm the gruff, unfriendly, cantankerous guy, I guess. You know, everybody knows Donna. Everybody knows. That's the kind of person you should be. Why? It's attractive. It makes. You think Christ was cranky? Do you think Christ was a bad tipper if he lived and tipped? Do you think he was mean to people who did things for him? No. We are to be good, model, peaceable, humble. And no, don't go wrong. And, and by the way, this is one of our problems as Christians. One of the great deadly sins that we as Christians have is we have the answers to a lot of problems, don't we? It's kind of hard to keep our mouths shut about that, isn't it? It's easy for us to look down on the people who don't know Christ. It's easy for us to look at them and think of them as stupid and, as, and to demean them. And what does Paul say here? For we ourselves were also once foolish. He's saying, you know what? Don't look down on these people. Why? Because you know what? One day, there was a day when you were just as foolish as they were. We have the answers, folks, but if we're snooty about it and arrogant about it, no one's going to listen. We are to be peaceable and gentle and humble in the way we talk to other people, the way we present the truth, present ourselves so that it attracts them. It makes Christ attractive, and we do that because we have to remember that one day, there was a day in our past when we were in the same foolishness that they were. We thought the same way they did. Because we were once foolish. We were once disobedient. As Christians, these say, I don't understand why that person is going to live with that guy. That's horrible. That's a... Well, you know what? If you were not a believer and you thought like everybody else, what would you think? You'd be doing the same thing. Don't look down on them. You were once foolish. You were once disobedient. Here's a question. Can you be disobedient to a command you don't know about? No. No. How can... Now, in the grand scheme of things, are these people disobedient to the Lord of God? Yes, but what do you mean by disobedient? They don't know it. There's a different level of disobedience. If you know something, you're disobedient. That's a lot worse than if you don't know it and you're disobedient. In both cases, you're doing the wrong thing. 
But in the latter case, you don't know you're doing the wrong thing. Most people today don't know that they are violating the law of God. They don't know that. They don't see that. They, they, and why is that? Well, they're lost. And what does it say here? They were deceived. Who's the grand deceiver? Well, Satan is, right? Do you understand that the people in the world are deceived? They think they're, they, they're doing the right thing when they're not? Do you honestly think Jerry Springer stands up and says, I want you to do this because it will ruin your lives and make you miserable? you think he really wants to do that? He wants to help people out. He wants to help out. He thinks he is, but he's deceived. Well, this could be your next state senator. <laughs> I was to say, serving various lusts and pleasures. What's lust? Desires and pleasures. Uh, if you don't have Christ, immorality is good. You know, if you find somebody, have at it. What's what's to stop you, right? Feels good to do it. You know, it, there's nothing wrong. You were serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy. What's malice and envy? Jealousy, you know. Look at the average person a day. When somebody gets some money, they're jealous of it. Somebody had, yeah. You think that you're free. You think that you've got all the freedom, but really you're in bondage. That's what people people in the world think. Well, I'm free to do what I want. No, you're not. You're 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 subject to your sin. You're in bondage to your own desires. You think you're free, but you're not. You think you have freedom and choice, and you don't. Did God give the commandments to, to free us? Yeah. But see, that's the deceitfulness of sin. Deceitfulness of sin says do your own thing. Be free. God's being restrictive. He says, you know, you used to serve various lusts and pleasures. You used to live in malice and envy. You were hateful and hating one another. That's how you live. Look at the world today. Look at how people are today. And you've got to understand, underneath the veneer of all the people around you is a mob ready to loot. It's interesting, they were asking, you know, when they, when the L.A. had the earthquakes and they had all those riots and the looting, where did the looters come from? Everywhere. They lived there. They were the people there. They weren't, they, you didn't ship in looters from out of state. They were the people that lived next door. Now, where were they all along? They were all there, but once the restraints were moved, what happened? Well, people did what they did. And Paul, Paul's trying to remind Titus, and Titus to remind the people, say, you know, there was a time when you used to be like them. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, where would you be now? You'd be like them. So don't look down on them. Be gentle with them. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, when's the kindness and love of God our Savior? When did that appear? Well, in time it appeared at the crucifixion. When did it appear to you? Well, there was a date when it appeared to you, wasn't there? There's was a date when God showed up to you. 
And notice what it says here. The kindness and love of God. Aren't you glad God was kind and love, loving to, to show up to you? When it appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Now, if you read that text there, when it comes to your salvation, who initiated that? God did. You didn't. You did not initiate your salvation. It did not come from you. It came from God. That's sort of a humbling kind of thought, isn't it? You say, well, you know, I, I was looking for God. No, you weren't. You weren't looking for God. Come on. Nobody's looking for God, right? You're looking for peace, happiness, joy, something. You're not looking for God. God's the last person you want to find as an unbeliever. Here's the point that Paul is making. God took the initiative. God appeared in his kindness and love. He appeared not by what you have done, but by his mercy he saved you. Now, if, if, if you didn't do anything to get saved, I want you to stop and think about this. Think about the logical extension of this. If you believe in God, is that doing something? From the human perspective, if you believe in God, is that doing something? See, I've trained you all too well. If you believe in God, is that doing something? From your perspective. Sure it is. Sure. Sure, you're doing something. All right. Now, how are you saved? According to this text. Not by you doing what? Anything. You didn't do anything. When did you get saved? You got saved, and then what did you do? Then you did something. You didn't do, do something and then get saved. You got saved, then you did something, and the reformers call this the order salutis, the order of salvation. Are you regenerated and then you believe, or do you believe and then you're regenerated? You know what I mean? Do you accept Christ and then you're saved? Or are you saved by God who transforms your life, regenerates you, makes you a new creation, and then immediately you believe and you understand and you respond? What would this text seem to at. God, initiates it. God initiates it, God regenerates, then you believe. He, he showed up, not by anything you've done. And you must admit, if you tell somebody, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, from the human perspective that's true, but how are they able to believe? Well, we get a peek at here, God regenerates, they can believe. They can respond, they can understand. It's a difficult concept, and quite honestly, there's a mystery about it we all don't understand. But Paul, I think, indicates here very clearly to Titus that it is a God who is the initiator of our salvation. It's he who starts it. And all we do, we are the recipients of it. But where there is salvation and grace, there is also what in the previous chapter? 
where God's grace appears, what does it teach us? To deny ungodliness and worldly lust. You can't, one of, one of the danger, here's one of the dangerous things, you, you can't split out the components of salvation and separate them from one another. They're all connected together. They're all, they're all there. You can't have faith without a transformed life. You can't have regeneration without believing. Alright? They're all there together. You can't have believing without repentance. You can't have salvation if you don't repent. It's all part of the deal. Because God is the initiator and we respond to that grace that's been given to us. It wasn't according to our righteousness He saved us, but according to His mercy that He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. What is that referring to? The rebirth. Who's the agent of the rebirth? The Holy Spirit. And what does it mean to be regenerated? Made alive. You were dead and you're made alive. You were dead. And you know, this goes back to the radical depravity, goes back to the total depravity. If you want, um, the absolute inability, if you want to think about it. The, the, apart from Christ, every human being is absolutely incapable of responding to the truth. They can't do it. Why can't they do it? They don't want to. And what else? They don't know if it's true. And it goes against their flesh. It goes against their very being. It goes against their very nature. The only way anybody can respond to truth is God has to open their heart and do a transforming work. And then there can be a response. It's not by works of righteousness which you have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Why did God save any human being? Mercy. Not because you're a wonderful person, not because he liked you better than the guy next door, not because you're more attractive, but because he was merciful. And notice what it says there. His mercy, he saved us. Who's the one who's doing the initiation? The he. It's not... We responded to him. No, he saved us. If you want to think about it, some of, you know, they use the illustration of the lifeline, you know, you're drowning and somebody throws you the little, whatever the little round thinger is, and you grab onto it and you're saved. And they say that's like salvation, you know, God throws you the life raft, you got to grab onto it. Well, you know what this is saying? God not only threw the life raft at you, He had to jump in the water because you, were in a, you weren't able to grab onto it. You were out, and if He didn't pull you up, you wouldn't have made it. He had to jump in the water, and He had to pull you out because you couldn't respond. You couldn't hang on to the, to the life buoy or ring or whatever it is. You couldn't grab onto it. You were going down 
And he gave it's the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out on us abundantly. Now, this sort of blows Benny Hinn's thesis out of the water, doesn't it? Where you got the, you know, in his book, Good Morning, Holy Spirit, where you've got the second blessing, and then you've got the anointing, and then you've got the double whammy, or whatever it is he's come up with. What does it mean to pour out abundantly? Did God hold anything back? You know, God held nothing back. God didn't give you a little dabble of the Spirit. Say, no, I, I got to ration it because I got some more. He poured it out abundantly. There was no holding back. So here's a question. Did God forget to give you something that you need? No. He gave it to you abundantly. The idea of abundantly means it's more than you ever need. Don't ever say, God, you know, if I just had a little more of you. What do you mean a little more of you? You've got all of God that God can possibly give you. It's been poured out abundantly. The problem is he hasn't got all of you. It's not you not having all of him. He's poured it out abundantly on you. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Having been justified, what does that mean? To be declared righteous. Because we've been declared righteous, what do we get? Heirs, according to the hope, we get it all. We get it all. We get it all. And, and that's why, that, that's what I find so awesome about salvation. I didn't do anything to get saved. God saved me. I can't live a holy life. Only God can live a holy life through me by empowering me to do that which I normally of my own nature would not do. He then gives me eternal life which I don't deserve, which I can't earn. He helps me to do good works then he turns around and rewards me for doing what he's enabled me to do. And in all of this, I don't do anything. Because I can't do anything. Now, we understand, of course, that we need to obey, but how can you obey? The only power you have to obey is God gives you the power to obey. It's a win-win-win. He does it all. So when we get to heaven, we can't all be sitting around saying, okay, well, Steve, how'd you get here? You know, tell me about it. Well, you know, I did this. We're heirs. And Romans, you know, this is almost a companion passage in Romans, where heirs were joint heirs with Christ. What does it mean to be a joint? You ever think about that? What does it mean to be a joint heir? Does it? What does it mean to be a joint heir? Huh? Everybody gets it all. It's not like God says, okay, here's heaven, we're going to split it, you know, 30 billion ways for all the 30 billion believers. You each get one thirty billionth of heaven. No, you get all of it. A joint heir is someone who inherits it all equally. They all get 100% of the estate. 
There's no pieces, parts left out. Isn't that an amazing thought that we are a joint heir with Christ? All that Christ inherits is ours. Now, we understand he has a name which is above every name. He is God. There is a difference there. But as far as to the fullness and the enjoyment of heaven, you know, we don't get to heaven and God say, well, you know, I left you, you know, X percent. You get 2X. You get, you know, 0.0X or whatever. We all get it all. We all get everything. We all get it all. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. Here's the number five faithful saying. I want you to affirm this constantly. What does it mean to affirm constantly? Continue to keep it in remembrance all the time. Remind people day and night, like my grandmother used to do, about certain things. She'd remind me. I got so sick of her reminding things. But you know what? I remember what she said. Affirm it constantly. What? That those that have believed in God should be careful to maintain. If you live, if you claim to be a Christian, what should you be doing? Good works. Now, how do you do good works? Well, God gives you the ability to do good works. He empowers you to do that, but you've got to do it. And, and, and throughout this text, there's no indication here that being a Christian means that what I do is different from what I am. If I'm a Christian, I'm to live like it. And if I claim to be Christ, a Christ one, I should act like Christ acted. And if I'm not, don't claim to be a Christian. People deceive themselves in churches. They're thinking, well, now that I'm saved, I'm in, I'm going to heaven, so you know, whether I make a few mistakes hither and yon, nah, it's all right, you know, big deal. God forgive me anyways. Not to worry. Be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. What does it mean, good and profitable to men? It'll benefit you, but also who else does it benefit? All men. All men. And particularly, how does it benefit them? It brings about change in their lives. And it adorns the doctrine of God our Savior who wants to attract people to the message. If you live good, if your good works, it's good for you, good for I mean, I'd rather live in a society where people do good things and bad things. I don't know about you. That's a positive thing. And he says, be careful to maintain these. The idea of careful, you got to think about it. You got to work at it. It's not automatic. Take some effort. In verse 9, he says, but avoid foolish disputes. Oh, how many times has that showed up? Avoid it. Run from foolish disputes, contentions, and strivings about what? The law. What's the law? What's it talking about law here? What do you mean about the law? The legal disputes. Avoid it. Maybe, maybe you know, don't get drawn into arguments about how long does a woman's skirt need to be, or, or can you go to a movie or not, or are you allowed to drink a a glass of wine, or 
Don't get drawn into that. Don't get, don't, don't get sucked into that stuff. Because what does it do? It engenders strife. Avoid it. Don't, don't go there. Avoid that. Contentions and strivings about the law for they are unprofitable and useless. And again, I think this goes back to as we mature in Christ, our relationship changes from that of a child where there are rules to that of an adult in which there is a relationship and a principle, isn't it? And instead of sitting around arguing about bedtime, argue about the principle. And if you start worrying about the little itty-bitty nitty-gritty thingies of the law, everybody's got an opinion. Well, I think you can see that movie. Well, I'm not sure you ought to go see that movie because it's got one bad word in it. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. You could be. You can't avoid it. And then it says here, what? Reject the device of man after the first and second admonition. What, what's, what device of man? Device of over what? Over the, the contentious wranglings of the law. Now, what Paul is not saying here is don't, don't defend the truth. That's not what he's saying, is it? The context here is not Paul saying, Timothy, don't argue about the truth. Don't argue about your doctrine. Don't, don't always be sparring over your doctrine. No, that's not the point. He's talking about the little itty-bitty things of the law that aren't doctrine. They're just opinions. They're just your viewpoints. Don't get in there. And if there's a guy who comes into your place and all he wants to do is argue and argue and argue over this stuff, you give him a warning, you give him another warning, then what do you do? You reject them. Don't. I had occasion in my life that I had to do that. A good friend of mine, I go over to his house and all he do is whine about the legalistic things that he thought the church should be doing and they're not. And on and on it went. And finally I just said, I've had enough of this. I left. Never did go back. Doesn't do any good. Why? All you want to do is argue and fight over things that don't matter. And, I'm to, and what's it tell me to do? It tells me to reject them. It tells me do not the idea of rejecting is don't put up with, don't expose yourself to this because what will happen? It'll rub off on you and make you cantankerous and striving about things. And why are you to reject them? Well, knowing that, that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. He's warped in his thinking and he is in sinning. And he's self-condemned. The idea of this, you know, the, this dissension thing, it's dissension over things that don't matter. And how often we get into big fights. You know, most people, they don't get in a fight over the deity of Christ, but they get into a fight of how much, how long your hair can be as a man. You know, you can't have it below your collar. You can't have it over your ear, something like that. They'll argue about that, but some of the bigger things they don't argue about. It's penny-ante stuff. 
Get away from that. And don't hang around people that all they want to do is continue to argue and fight and scrap about stuff that doesn't matter. Stay away from them. Because they're warped, they're sinning, and you don't need to deal with them. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs, that they be not unfruitful. Who is he talking to here? Yeah, some friends, right? Some companions. We don't know who Artemis is. Tychicus is a letter bearer, remember? He took several books. I think Ephesians was one he took. Um, you have Zenos. You know who Apollos is. These are friends. And it says, verse 14, a lot of people also learn to make, maintain good works to meet urgent needs. What does it mean to maintain good works and meet urgent needs? In context, what may he be referring to? For who? For these people who evidently are ministers going from city to city doing things meet their urgent needs. There's no Motel 6 in those days or Holiday Inn meet their urgent needs. That they may not be unfruitful. That's the idea. If they're going to a town and have to worry about where to stay and what to eat and all that, it's going to dig into their ability to minister, isn't it? So encourage the people in the towns and villages that when godly men come through, help them out, give them a place to stay, give them a piece of bread or food so that they can do their ministry and not be hindered because they've got to worry about where they're going to eat or sleep or whatever. All are with me. Greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you. All amen. So as you look back over these three books, First, Second Timothy, Titus. What's the big picture? Sean is not a leader. All about character. Character is a big theme. Your leadership, your your ministry is based on the character. What's another theme? Doctrine. What kind of doctrine? Sound. Sound. And what are you to avoid? Vain janglings and wranglings and all of that stuff. And he's telling them how to, how to particularly behave themselves where? In the church. And how to deal with each other in the church, the community of believers. These are precious books, folks. I mean, I love teaching through these books. Every time I go through these, I just, I'm so encouraged um, by what's in here. I think... Um, Anita was saying that everybody and every person in the church ought to read these books and understand them. So they really form the basis of the ministry. If you want to, if you're in the church, you want to know what is the basis of my ministry. Here it is, right here. I'll tell you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.